This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Timothy C. Weingard. Timothy is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Colorado, America. He joined me via Skype to talk about his new book, The Mosquito, a human history of our deadliest predator. very excited now to speak with my next guest, Timothy C. Weingard. He is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Colorado, America. And uh, Timothy has written a book called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. And it is out through text publishing in Australia. It's uh, quite a hefty tome. There's about... Let me see here, 442 pages of the the kind of main text. Um, so there's a huge amount of research that has gone into this book. And it's really in, in, a very fascinating book because it's combining essentially science and history and giving us a bit more of an accurate and coherent and cohesive picture of some of the most important events in human history and how the mosquito has really altered the course of our own history and uh, kept our population in check, apparently, as well. So I'm really pleased uh, to welcome via Skype Timothy C. Weingard. Hi there, Timothy. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you on and um, to talk about this fantastic book. It's um, really fascinating reading every page. There's just so many things that I'm surprised and delighted by um, and sometimes shocked, I've got to say. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the mosquito and some of the stats that you bring in at the beginning to kind of um, I guess, emphasize the significance of this insect and perhaps why it has been discounted for so long. Um, I'll read a few out to get us going. Um, but you really highlight the fact that the mosquito has killed more people than any other cause of death in human history and that statistical extrapolation situates mosquito-inflicted deaths approaching half of all humans that have ever lived, which is an estimate estimated 52 billion people from a total of 108 billion throughout human history, which is 200,000 years. Um, How did you get to this point where you as a historian, who I know you focus on a range of periods of history in your own writing and research and teaching, how did you get to this point where you realised the mosquito was such an important player of history um, and yet has really been neglected? Well, I think for some of my other books dealing with um, Indigenous peoples globally, I've written quite a few books dealing with um, Indigenous peoples all over the world, including Australia. I had come across malaria and yellow fever um, in my research for my previous books, but really after my last book, um, I sat down with my dad, who's an emergency doctor back home in, in Canada, and he kept saying, your next book's got to be on disease. So I started down the rabbit hole, kind of putting some puzzle pieces together and just kept coming across, you know, specific terms throughout history relating 
to malaria, which has been the scourge of humanity uh, across our relatively brief existence. And the more research I did, the more puzzle pieces I put on the table, and this very clear picture started to emerge of uh, of just how much this tiny little animal has impacted and shaped and steered um, the course of human in history since, since day one, and even our hominid ancestral evolution in Africa and as far back as the dinosaurs. So it was just astounding once I went further down the rabbit hole um, in some of these statistics, obviously, that come from, from various sources, and they are estimates, but um, and I was just shocked. And so I had a wonderful time digging into all the research over, you know, two and a half, three years, and then writing for another year and a half, two years. So it, it was quite the journey and quite the wild ride. And, and I I was surprised, just as you said in the introduction, um, with some of the things I found in my research about um, this this pesky little bug sticking her nose um, literally everywhere in, in human history. Mm. And we'll get to some of those examples in a moment. Um, I was surprised that at the beginning of the book, you highlight that there are actually a few places in the world where mosquitoes do not exist or they, they don't live there and some of them are probably the the coldest like Antarctica and Iceland um, but there are also a handful of French Polynesian micro islands that apparently do not have the um, pleasure of of mosquito habitation <laughs> <laughs> why do you think that is that mosquitoes aren't in some of those um, places in in the world well, I think that the first point is that only females bite and they need the blood of, of humans in a zoological Noah's Ark of other animals. They bite every animal going um, to, to simply um, grow and mature their eggs. So if there isn't the animals to eat there, whether it's birds, because birds are a, a big one for mosquitoes or, or other mammals, uh, reptiles, they simply can't survive to procreate. So um, Iceland is a unique ecosystem, so that's part of it. Um, and, and Antarctica obviously is just too cold. Old, um, and, and barren of, of most animals. Uh, and some of these really, really tiny um, islands in the Pacific, it's the same reason. There's just nothing to feed on, so they can't get blood to, to grow and mature their eggs and reproduce, which they're, they're designed and programmed to do. Mm. And, I mean, when you describe in detail exactly what a mosquito does when they suck your blood, um, if you were queasy, you might start to get quite anxious and um, sickened by what exactly they do. It, but it's also quite impressive and very sophisticated in terms of um, their biology and how they've evolved to actually um, suck out a human's blood um, and then deposit or get rid of the kind of water element of the blood so they're only getting the concentrated um kind of material that they need in order to breed. Could you share with us like the process of, of a mosquito, um, you know, finding a human, becoming a tr like what attracts them to that human, um, which I also found fascinating and what, what they do. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of mythology out there of why mosquitoes prefer some people over <clears throat> over others. Um, and unfortunately, about 85% of what makes a person alluring or less alluring to mosquitoes is is hardwired in their genetic circuit board. So you're you're kind of out of luck if if you drew the short straw genetically. The big one is blood type. Uh, blood type O is the vintage of choice over A or B or their blend. Um, how much carbon dioxide? somebody naturally respires carbon dioxide is, is a mosquito magnet and they can smell carbon dioxide from over 200 feet away uh, how much lactic acid and other chemicals people have in and on their skin 
Um, so it, it's a whole slew of things that are essentially genetic traits. Um, there's no tr- truth to they prefer uh, blondes and redheads over people with darker hair, that they prefer women over men, um, that the more leathery or darker your skin is, the safer you are. Those those are all myths, uh, as well as this whole vitamin B12. I, I've been reading about that. If you take vi- B, vitamin B supplements, it wards off mosquitoes. That's been debunked medically in numerous studies. And, and while we don't know the reason for this one, and some of your listeners may get upset, uh, they do prefer beer drinkers, and we don't <laughs> know why. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and applied fragrances attract mosquitoes. They hunt by both sight and smell, smell specifically that carbon dioxide, and then also wearing bright colors attracts mosquitoes. So there's a slew of things, but at the end of the day, it, most of it is genetic, specifically that blood type O. Um, so they smell your carbon dioxide, your lactic acid, your bright colors, or your, you know your, your beer, um, and they'll land in you know, do a little reconnaissance of your of your skin to find that blood vessel. And essentially to, to simplify it, they have six needles. Um, two of them are mandible cutting blades that shift back and forth, much like an electric carving knife. Uh, they saw into your skin. Two other needles uh, are retractors. Or they open, um, open the skin and hold it open for the fifth needle, which is a straw essentially that sucks um, three to five milligrams of blood. All the while, the sixth needle goes in, which uh, pumps in saliva, which contains an anticoagulant and, and a little bit of an analgesic, uh, so you don't feel her biting, and to prevent the blood from clotting at that puncture site. And this is the tube, that sixth tube, that saliva tube, that also delivers the pathogens into um, humans and, and a ton of other animals. Um, so there's no actual blood exchanged in the bite so mosquitoes can't transmit hiv or anything like that because there's no they're two separate functioning tubes for uh the sucking the blood and inserting the anticoagulant saliva so it's important to remember that it's not the mosquito uh itself the mosquito is harmless it's the um, catalog of pathogens that she transmits during the bite uh, or these pathogens that essentially hitch a free ride via the vector of the mosquito Mm. And um, it's really fascinating that it's always a female doing this biting um, and that you write that male mosquitoes don't bite and that for them, their world revolves around two things, nectar and sex. And that reminds me of an interview I did about bees, which was very similar in the sense that the men were really there to provide the kind of sperm and to enable the um, females to to procreate and be the leaders and the important actors and the men were kind of like the side players. I find right. it fascinating that in this book and, you know, in human history, so much of history is um, boiled down to great men, quote unquote, and the, the, the genius <laughs> that they have in their various, you know, events and wars. And yet it's actually females who seem to be almost the most influential. Yes, the the male mosquito gets off easy, um, as as you mentioned. Their world revolves around um, essentially procreating and, and nectar. They drink nectar, not blood. Um, so they do pollinate flowers um, to some extent uh, and other plants, but not like bees, for example, as as you just mentioned. They're they're huge pollinators, and it's a worry globally that mm-hmm. the the bee populations are 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 in decline. Um, so male mosquitoes. What else is interesting about the reproduction is that. Um, 
males will mate frequently in their lifetime. Females will only mate once. Essentially, they mate once and they store the sperm and and deliver it piecemeal for each separate birthing of eggs. It's actually quite another marvelous evolutionary adaptation of, of the mosquito itself. So the animal itself is fascinating in her influence um, on history and defeating many great men, as you mentioned, um, mm. from time immemorial is quite fascinating. And there's a slew of examples, obviously, uh, and a catalog of examples in the book, um, chronologically from the dinosaurs all the way to, to present day. Yes, and um, just to kind of close out our discussion on uh, procreation and breeding, it's interesting to note that a lot of people here might associate mosquitoes with rivers or, you know, big pools of water. Um, However, you really show that you don't need much water at all to be able or for a female mosquito to be able to lay her eggs and for them to flourish and uh, mature. Uh, It depends on the species of mosquito. There's roughly 3,500, give or take, species of mosquitoes on the planet. Uh, And it's also important to keep in mind as we go further in the story that very few of these mosquito species are vectors for disease. It's a a handful of certain species that that transmit or vector these diseases or these pathogens. Uh, But no, some mosquitoes prefer salt water, some fresh water, some brackish water, some don't care at all. uh, And they definitely don't need much it can be a tiny little pool in a backyard toy a tonka truck or a used tire or they crush beer can they certainly don't need a lot um, and as i said the females are just programmed to procreate and carry on their species and, and they are seemingly very good at it mm. and in terms of evolution that's something that you focus on and how different species have evolved um, one of the examples that you give is the blitz air raids in london in 1940 and 41, uh, where Germans um, bombed London and there were a population of Culex mosquitoes who were confined to the air raid tunnel shelters in the underground tube, which I'm sure many people who visited are familiar with. Um, What was the significance of that kind of adaptation that this kind of um, breed or population of mosquitoes undertook? Well, they were trapped, so you know they came down into the the tube and the air raid shelters with the the hardy uh, London civilians during the Blitz and, and the Nazi bombing, um, and they learned to feed on on rats and mice very quickly instead of birds uh, and humans above ground. And within 50 years, they adapted into a completely different species than their above ground um, parents. Uh, and actually, they're unable to breed with each other. So it's an evolutionary marvel just how quickly this happened. And the, the um, director of the British Entomology Society joked that in another 50 years, each separate line in the tube will have its own Culex mosquito populations <laughs> and new species. Um, but it just shows how quickly they can adapt and evolve to survive, which is one of the reasons we've we've had such a hard time uh, defeating the mosquitoes, specifically the malaria-carrying Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, They adapt so quickly to insecticides and other um, frontline weapons that we throw their way um, and seemingly have always been able to circumvent uh, our our best methods of extermination to survive. Um, And as I keep saying, just like any other species, including ourselves, um, they want to survive as just as much 
much as we do, so they adapt. And we see humans in our early evolution adapting to what must have been cataclysmic rates of malaria in Africa with genetic or hereditary genetic shields, such as sickle cell and thalassemia, Duffy anti-negativity, to circumvent um, malaria. So it's it's been a, you know, give and take battle for as long as human beings have been on this planet. Indeed. And malaria is, you know, a very, very significant portion of this part, this history of the mosquito. And as you write, malaria is the unsurpassed unsurpassed scourge of humankind and that almost 300 million people at the moment are unlucky enough annually to contract malaria from the Anopheles mosquito. And um, it's kind of scary to think that although there have been some really great gains in treatment for malaria um, and prevention, that we're still um, battling with this on such a large scale. Uh, malaria, the mosquito transmit transmits various pathogens. So filariasis, often referred to as elephantitis, but that's not even correct. It's elephantiasis, which is a worm uh, transmitted by the mosquito that causes the engorgement of the limbs and genitals. Um, and 120 million people a year still contract filariasis from the filarial worm. Um, so a canine heartworm in dogs is caused by mosquitoes. And then there's the virus class, which is the biggest one, which is yellow fever, um, dengue, West Nile, and some unique ones in Australia with the Ross River virus, uh, Murray Valley encephalitis virus, mm. the Barmaphorus virus, and your own unique version of West Nile virus in Australia, the Cungen virus. Um, so the virus class is by far the biggest. Uh, and then malaria is in its own category. It's a, a protozoan parasite. It's a very unique parasite that requires both the mosquito and then another host um, to procreate and reproduce essentially. So part of its reproduction takes place in the mosquito and part of it takes place in another host that could be human or a whole swath of other animals, reptiles, amphibians, birds, uh, all the great apes have malaria. So there's over 400 types of malaria on the planet, five affecting um, human beings. So it, which is again, why it's so hard to defeat malaria. It's not a virus in the traditional sense where we can, you know, uh, um, create a vaccine. For example, yellow fevers had a vaccine uh, since the 1930s, and it's actually the only one of the virus class that has a vaccine. So we've been trying to, to defeat the malaria parasite, and we've made some strides, certainly with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, since 2000, the World Health Organization. But uh, malaria continues to, to, to stalk humanity. Uh, and as you mentioned, upwards of 300 million people a year contract malaria. Yeah, and um, and certainly it's something to to focus more on. I'm really impressed with your knowledge of Australian um, viruses because <laughs> I I was I had to um, find out more about that more recently and was shocked to know about the Ross River virus and the Barma Forest viruses, which are really quite. Um, debilitating for people and um, affect them for many years, even after the kind of main uh, part of the virus has finished. Um, Yeah, it certainly does knock people around a lot. Um, Let's talk about 
dinosaurs um, and then we can get into humans. I'm really interested because you certainly address this idea that there are sometimes competing versions of um, history and what really was the deciding factor as to why dinosaurs are no longer here and um, left the earth. And certainly there is an important element to it of, um, you know, that massive event um, where, you know, they were essentially destroyed by, was it a asteroid? Yeah, the meteor crashed meteor. 65, roughly 65 million years ago um, off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula uh, and what is now the touristy part of, of Mexico. Uh, and that certainly did happen. Um, the crater's about the size of the state of Vermont in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so the insect-borne disease theory doesn't supplant or replace um, the meteor collapse model. That absolutely happened, and it was the final final death knell, if you will, for dinosaur populations. Um, but we know mosquitoes have been around for at least 200 to 190 million years ago, so the early Jurassic period, and some research pushes back mosquitoes to 225 million years ago. Um, so we know for sure they were around during, you know, the reign of the dinosaurs. Um, and malaria in some form is, is is roughly 400 million years old. It started off as an aquatic algae and it still contains uh, vestiges of photosynthesis, actually, which is quite amazing. So we know that these things were around and looking at, you know, dinosaur bones and, and, and coprolite, the, the, the petrified feces, uh, we can see insect-borne worms, viruses, and parasites um, similar to malaria and yellow fever. Um, So this theory has been gaining traction for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and some, you know, theorists support the idea that roughly 70% of dinosaur species regionally were either extinct or endangered by the time it actually does hit 65 million years ago. Yeah, and um, let's talk a little bit about one of my favourite uh, parts of the world, Scotland. Who <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 pro independence. Uh, it would be great to see Scotland become independent, given their. Um, desire to remain in the EU, but that's another <coughs> subject. Uh, but I was so shocked to, and surprised to know that your um, book also covers the very important uh, influence that mosquitoes had in Scotland not um, being an independent nation. Can you share with us what happened in, I guess, a more condensed version because there is a lot of um, back and forth? Sure. This was actually one of the more fascinating stories and I had to 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 find a lot of sources to corroborate this story because I I couldn't believe it but sure enough there was numerous sources that I cobbled together. Um, long story short, in the late 1600s, um, Scotland was an independent country and it being badgered by her, her more wealthy English neighbour to the south for unification and Scotland obviously refused. Um, but the problem was is that Scotland couldn't take part in the uh, England. A colonial or mercantilist trade with with um, in, uh, English colonies. So Scotland was coming out of a huge recession. There had been failed oat and barley um, harvests, so they were in a famine, and Scotland was in a pretty dire situation. So the idea was that Scotland could get wealthy, um, you know, erecting colonies of their own in the Americas. So roughly, um, you know, twenty five to fifty percent 
of all Scottish capital available in an already cash-strapped in, you know, starving, famined, and uh, recession-stricken country was dumped into a scheme called the Darien Scheme, and they aimed to set up a colony in Panama. Um, so they sent over boatloads of Scottish settlers uh, with their Bibles and their woolen blankets and woolen sweaters and socks uh, and a printing press to record all the transactions they were going to have being at the center of trade between, you know, the, the, the isthmus there. Uh, and the colony was absolutely shredded um, by malaria and, and yellow fever. Um, and it floundered and it failed. And with it, all of um, Scottish capital that was pumped into this this colonial venture uh, sank in Panama or was bitten by mosquitoes of Panama. It left Scotland in, in absolute dire bankruptcy. So England agreed to pay off the Scottish debt uh, if Scotland would surrender its sovereignty and sign the 1707 Acts of Union, which they did. So um, Scotland surrendered its sovereignty due to um, malarious and, and yellow fever ridden mosquitoes in the wilds of Panama. And when I this story just was shocking. Um, and so um, Robbie Burns, the, the famous poet, chided the um, bought and sold for English gold. What a parcel of rogues in a nation is what he says about the Scottish politicians selling out Scotland, Scotland's independence after this failed Darien scheme. It's shocking, really. I, I still can't believe it, to be honest, um, <laughs> <laughs> that it could have. It's just changed the, the whole course of history. Um, before we get to current day and genetic editing and, and that element of the book, I just wanted to um, get your perspective, given there are so many points in history that the mosquito has influenced. <laughs> were there any that are beyond the Scottish example that were your favourite or that really stuck out as being surprising to you? Like, did you have a, a certain favourite when you were doing the research? Uh, the Scotland story was one that, as I said, it it, it was mind-boggling once mm. I, I researched that one. So that was one of them for sure. Another one was uh, was a family connection. Uh, I'm born and raised in Canada. I've been in Colorado for about um, eight years. Um, my wife is born and raised here, and and her grandfather fought in the Second World War for for the Americans, and he got malaria twice. Um, during the war. Now, the first one was at Anzio when the Allied uh, forces landed at Anzio to outflank the, the German line. Um, and the second time was at Dachau when his unit liberated the Dachau concentration camp. And um, Rex died, um, her grandpa Rex died a, a year ago, but before he died, I got to tell him how he contracted malaria. Uh, and he had no idea. He knew he had had malaria twice, but didn't understand how he could have gotten malaria at Anzio and again in you know southern Germany and near Munich with Dachau. So long story short, the Pontine marshes surrounding Rome, uh, 310 square miles of marshes have, have safeguarded essentially Rome uh, to allow for the creation of the Roman Empire from foreign invasion, whether that be the Carthaginians, uh, the, the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals, the Gauls. Um, so uh, Mussolini actually drained the Pontine marshes successfully prior to the Second World War and cut malaria rates in Italy by over 90%. So when the Allies were planning to land at Anzio, the Nazis purposefully reflooded the Pontine marshes uh, to rejuvenate malarious mosquitoes as a premeditated act of biological warfare. Uh, and it worked. And my wife's grandfather, Rex, contracted um, malaria at Anzio 
um, as a result of this Nazi premeditated biological warfare using mosquitoes, uh, which was an astounding story. And then he got malaria again at Dachau, and, and um, Dachau was the head of the Nazi tropical medicine program. So they were doing horrific experiments on, on Jewish inmates uh, and prisoners, um, Jewish prisoners there. Um, with malaria and yellow fever and other experimental, you know, medications. And so when his unit um, liberated Dachau, he was bitten by one of these experimental mosquitoes and, and got malaria for the second time. Um, and he had no idea how this happened until I told him personally in the spring of 2017, essentially what I just just told you and your audience. Uh, and it, it was kind of amazing to lift the curtain or pull the curtain back for not only Rex, but for his wife and my, and my wife and her entire family of how this all happened. And he was 96 years old and he was sitting in his, you know, armchair drinking a scotch after dinner when I told him this story. And he, he looked at me with this kind of stoic grin and just looked at me and said, Tim, that makes sense. <laughs> well, it's, um, I mean, it's bad and horrible, but it's almost like what you would class as evil genius to be doing something which now is utilized all the time in terms of biological warfare and was still kind of in its early stages in World War II. It's shocking to, to discover that that's what they were doing. Yes, it was uh, certainly shocking. And then to have that family connection made yeah. it even more real. And certainly in the book, using Rex's narrative um, for the Second World War helps kind of put a personal face to to that story and the story of the, the horrific experiments at Dachau on the, the Jewish prisoners. So um, that was something that I found fascinating. And again, being able to kind of share with, with Rex and his whole family how this all happened, um, you know, and he died about a year later at 97. So uh, that was, was interesting um, and certainly, I think, a little bit rewarding for himself and mm. his larger family as well. Yeah, indeed, because you would often think, well, oh, perhaps I'm just really unlucky if you, you weren't aware of what the cause might have been to, to have hit twice. Right, and there was... Unfortunately, the reflooding of the Pontine Marshes as an act of biological warfare backfired in a way, too, because the Germans also contracted <laughs> malaria at Anzio as well. So it wasn't just the Allies, but it was also intended by Hitler to be punishment for the Italian civilians who had just switched sides in the war as well. And he wanted to punish them with, with malaria. And he makes this quite clear uh, to punish the Italian civilians first by any means necessary. Gosh, I'm glad that we've um, since moved slightly from that period of history, but it is still, as you shared just there, it's still recent and there are people who are alive who were still involved in World War II. So um, it's really, it is great to have that human connection. Let's um, talk about current day and genome editing and sequencing. This is only a fairly recent event that we were able to sequence the human genome and other plant genomes um, and I was really fascinated about this idea and um, did a little bit of research after to see what the scientific community was saying about it in, with this idea of CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, and the fact that perhaps uh, given mosquitoes have been 
um, so damaging to human society. Some people have proposed um, a range of solutions, one of which would be to just wipe out mosquitoes and another of which would be to change the mosquito's genetic makeup so that it doesn't pass on these types of um, pathogens. And, of course, you say the latter option would be preferred by a number of people. Um, But I'm interested in this idea of what the mosquito offers the ecosystem and um, how vital or not it is and uh, what your thoughts are on this kind of proposal in a, in a bit of a brave new world scenario. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to start with the fact going back to what I mentioned earlier, which is an important point, is that of the 3,500 mosquito species, give or take on the planet, there's only a handful, relatively speaking, of those 3,500 Uh, that are capable of vectoring or transmitting disease. So it's important to note that nobody is promoting the eradication of all mosquitoes from the face of the planet. Um, That's not what what anybody's promoting. So we need to be very clear. It would be targeting very specific species of the Anopheles uh, mosquitoes that transmit malaria and the 80s mosquitoes that transmit uh, a swath of those viruses that I talked about and then the Culex mosquito as well, certain species. So it's not a a wholesale eradication of mosquitoes. Um, Mosquitoes, I mean, we don't know 100% that they serve an absolute or, or irreplaceable function. But as I mentioned, since the males do drink nectar and don't bite, um, they do pollinate plants. And I actually got an email from the um, the president of the American Orchid Association after he had read my book saying that if we wiped out mosquitoes, uh, certain orchids are only pollinated by mosquitoes. So that we'd, we'd lose a handful of orchid species as well. Wow. And he was very adamant that we shouldn't do that, uh, <laughs> being a lover of the flowers. <laughs> so um Uh, They do serve as a food source for other animals. So, for example, certain fish, specifically trout, salmon, um, eat eat the eggs that float on the top of the water or the little caterpillars uh, that the eggs hatch into that skim along the the top of the water. Uh, Bats eat a lot of mosquitoes. Um, so bats are actually a very, very important part of the ecosystem, and, and they're also getting a kind of a bad rap lately. Um, pardon the, the slang, but um, bats gorge themselves on mosquitoes. So where you see thriving bat populations, you also see lower mosquito populations. So they do serve a, a function, and and I don't, I don't have an opinion on this, but obviously they've been humanity's most deadliest predator across our existence. So they may control our act as a Malthusian check against uncontrolled human population growth. Now, I'm not going to pick sides on that one, but that's certainly an argument that's been put forth. So with the CRISPR gene editing technology that came out in 2012 out of of Berkeley with with a woman named Dr. Jennifer Doudna, it's absolutely fascinating. And Jurassic Park, if you will, is real. Um, we have the ability to intrude on natural selection and, and replace the DNA of any animal, humans, mosquitoes, or otherwise, with desired DNA, uh, thereby permanently altering the genome of, of that creature. And it's, you know, it's a bit like opening Pan- Pandora's box. And it, it certainly, as you mentioned, a brave new world. It's, it is scary and it's um, fascinating all at the same time. Um, as far as mosquitoes goes, there's two avenues with 
CRISPR, and one is to CRISPR mosquitoes in a lab, uh, release them into a uh, into the wild. These spe- only the specific species that that vector disease, mind you, um, and thereby when they mate, their offspring would be all male, infertile, or stillborn, essentially, or you know, wiping out that mosquito species. Now the other avenue with CRISPR is to CRISPR these specific vectoring species with something called a gene drive or a selfish gene that would be passed down their bloodlines, uh, pardon the pun, so a hereditary gene that would make these species simply harmless by making them incapable of actually vectoring or transmitting these pathogens, thereby bringing down the pathogen itself but not the mosquito species. Interesting. And um, in terms of the ideas around this, that's obviously one non-chemical way of addressing a situation. And the alternative which uh, many councils and governments have used and even individuals have been using is to use um, quite harmful chemicals historically to spray certain areas where the mosquitoes have laid their eggs. And um, you highlight the fact that they're these mosquitoes really mature very quickly, like almost within a week um, you go from being an egg to um, a fully blown flying mosquito. So obviously spraying is, you know, not that ideal and it also has some really significant environmental and human consequences. What was your um, understanding, before we um, have to head off, of the chemical approach and um, I'm thinking of examples like DDT and chloroquine um, which were used after the Second World War? Well, I think when we look at the, the, the insecticides to, to spray chemicals to, you know, eradicate mosquitoes, uh, they evolve so quickly that, you know, again, they're still here, 110 trillion of them on the planet. Um, they, they evolve so quickly to become immune to these insecticides. So, for example, when DDT was um, commercially available to farmers as of 1946, they basically, you know, paved paradise to use Joni Mitchell's vernacular with DDT. Uh, and it, depending on the species of mosquitoes, it took anywhere from two to 20 years for the those mosquito species to become immune to DDT. So the banning of DDT had more to do with it, its failure and that it didn't work anymore than any political clout um, that, you know, Rachel Carson wrote in Silent Spring uh, or any large scale political environmental movement. It just simply didn't work. And, and we have to be careful here, too, is that using DDT for residual spraying around houses specifically to surgically target mosquitoes was not what caused the environmental degradation. It was the carpeting agricultural use by farmers that created so much harm and environment, environmental degradation to other animals and then eventually entering, entering our own human food chain and causing cancers. So um, that's an important point. And again, with chloroquine or any other anti-malarial, the problem is, is that the malaria parasite adapts so quickly too. Um, by the time we do our human trials, we've exposed the malaria parasite to these chemicals or these drugs. So by the time it's made convert commercially available, uh, the parasites had a long time to shapeshift to be able to circumvent these drugs, rendering them obsolete so quickly. And we've seen this over and over and over again with all these anti-malarials, including chloroquine, which is why malaria is still so, um, you know, proficient and widespread across certain parts of the planet. 
Timothy, I cannot thank you enough for what has been such a fascinating discussion and I feel like I've learned so much and I can't look at the world the same way again. So I appreciate what you've done with this book, which must have taken, as you said, a, a while to research and to to really check into because of the wondrous and amazing kind of stories that you've uncovered through history. So congratulations and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Professor of History and Political Science at Colorado Mesa University, Mr. Timothy C. Wingard, and he has been the author of The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, which is published through Text Publishing. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.